If you have a Bible, if you could turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 19. But in reality, we're going to try to essentially get through all of Hebrews 6, the whole chapter today. But for now, I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. And I assure you, we will get the whole context in a moment. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9 through 19. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge and lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters into the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here we are in the end of Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 is famously known for that dreadful and terrifying apostasy passage. So what what my goal is today is to get through the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 6, primarily focusing on that end Uh, But we have to get up to there. So in order to get up to there, we have to remind ourselves of what we have seen prior to this. So if you go back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and if you scan a little bit before that, 10 and 9, for example, you'll see that what the author was trying to do is he was trying to speak to them about Melchizedek. And so from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10 and 11-ish, all the way until Hebrews chapter 7, he really wants to speak about how Jesus and Melchizedek are related to one another. And I really look forward to when we can actually get to that matter. That is a deep spiritual truth. Uh, It's really only clearly revealed in the book of Hebrews. And that's what he's pressing toward, this deep doctrinal matter. And yet, he is unable to speak to them about this deep doctrinal matter before he addresses something else. He wants to talk about high theology But instead, he has to talk about something else. And the reason he's unable to get there, and you see that in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 5, is he says that they have become dull of hearing. They used to have open ears, and yet they have fallen asleep, and now they are dull of hearing. He says a little bit after that, he says that they ought to be teachers, they ought to be spiritually mature, and yet instead of being a teacher... Instead of being someone who can disciple, they themselves need to be discipled. Instead of having be ready for meat, they are spiritual babes that are only suitable for the milk. Then turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, 
he then tells these spiritual babes, these people who ought to be teachers, but yet are still small children, he tells them that they need to leave behind the elementary Christian doctrine that is only suitable for babes. Babes can only handle this, but they need to become mature. You see that in verse 1. Let us leave behind these elementary doctrines. Instead, let's go on to maturity. And then he describes, which we won't look into, but he describes what those elementary doctrines are. Baptism, laying on of hands, faith from dead works, ultimate salvation. Just the basic ABCs of Christianity. We need to move beyond that. Not that that's bad, but we need to move beyond that. You need to be able to handle deep spiritual doctrine. If you can never handle anything about Christology, the Trinity, soteriology, ecclesiology, any of these things, any deep theological matter, if when the topic of eschatology comes up, you're like, I'm not interested, there's something wrong because you should be interested in the things of God. So they need to move beyond that, become mature Christians that can handle mature Christian doctrine. And then look at verse three. He says, this they will do. They will go on to spiritual maturity. They will be able to handle the deep spiritual things of God. This we will do if, what does it say? If God permits. Now, what that implies is what? They will go on to maturity if God permits. That implies that perhaps God may not permit them to go on to spiritual maturity. Now, the question immediately that we should be thinking of, why would God not permit a Christian or a professing Christian, someone who's in the church, someone who has not grown, not to go on to Christian maturity? Because we all should go on to Christian maturity, right? Yes, of course. And that's where we get into that infamous warning passage. It comes right after that. They will go on to maturity if God permits. And look at verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For, very important word, for, which connects back to verse 3, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away again to restore them to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. So why might it not be in, why might God not permit these people to go into maturity? Because they might fall away into damnation. And in that state it is impossible to be restored. Again, that's what it says, and that's what the passage is about. Right after this, in verse 7, he tells them a story about two fields. They both receive plenty of rain. They both are out there in the sun, receive plenty of rain, yet two different things happen. One produces thorns and briars, and that kind of field is worthy to be cursed and to be burned. And yet there's another field, it's like a garden, and he comes back and he finds tomatoes and potatoes, and herbs. And this is a blessing to the one who has planted it. So there are two soils. One is good and one is bad. One has thorns and briars and one has herbs and wonderful vegetation. And this reminds us, this story alludes back to Jesus' four parables. Jesus told us about four soils and he says that these soils represent men's hearts. And there was a sower who went out to sow and he planted seeds on these various hearts, these various soils. And one that he planted on, the birds came up and they gobbled up the seed and nothing happened. You remember this story, everybody? We're all disciples of Jesus. You should be familiar with the words of Jesus, right? So this is on all three of the synoptic gospels. And the word, the seed, represents the word of God, the preaching of the gospel. 
And the bird that comes and gobbles up the seed is the devil who comes and snatches away the word of God before they can receive at all. And so this is like the people that you have evangelized. Hopefully you are that sower who went out to sow. And hopefully you have done this before. You have shared the gospel to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your coworkers. Anybody out there? You've done this? And you sowed and they did not receive it at all. And that's like that one soil. But then there's three other soils that they initially have some kind of reception to that word. They don't just utterly reject. They say, let me hear more. And then they respond positively. And then they are baptized. And then you rejoice and say, hallelujah, I've won a soul to God, but not so fast. Because that's not the end of the story. All three of those soils receive that word. And yet Jesus goes on and tells us that some of those soils were not actually good soil at all. Some was on thorny ground and some was on hard ground. And those two other hard ground and thorny ground ultimately in the matter of a course of time never produce a crop. They never, you never go out there and find all those wonderful potatoes and tomatoes. What kind of plants do you like to grow? Cilantro? I like that. You never get out there and you never get them. You see some, some budding out there. But then when you come back when it's time to harvest and you find nothing. But there is a soil who responds 30, 60, 100 fold. I have recently bought a house and I've recently got into farming and I haven't quite planted anything yet, but I'm excited to do that. And I certainly would be glad to have 30, 60, 100 fold bounty. Isn't that wonderful? Those are wonderful returns. And that is what the Christian life looks like who's actually saved is they'll have 30, 60, 100. That's not scanty. That's not you straining at the eye and thinking, is that a cilantro or is that a weed? That's when you have handfuls of cilantro, putting it in your lovely salsa. You know that, in fact, the harvest has come in. And so that's what he's talking about. He's saying that the one that comes with all the thorns, all the briars, all the dead grass, all of the clay and the dirt, that field is useless. You need to start over. You need to get your tiller out there. You need to go put some leaves over there, come back and take the leaves off and then plant again because that field is useless. Now, look at verse 9. This is where we started. Verse 9, he says this, But beloved, we are better, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things accompany salvation. He's saying, despite me telling you these things, despite me preaching this way to you, it's not because I actually think that you will ultimately not be saved. Let me just stop here. Some of you don't even like hearing about the warning passages. Some of you don't even like people warning you and telling you, make your calling and election sure. And yet the Bible itself does that. Do you see that? Some of you say, how dare you question my salvation? How dare you even make me think about whether I'm saved? And yet the Bible itself speaks this way to you. And I speak this way to you because the Bible speaks this way to you. And yet I am also confident, just like this passage, as I look around this room, for you, of, those, of those of you I know, and if you're baptized of an evangelical church, I'm confident in that as well, that you're in fact a believer, that you're saved. And that's what he says. Beloved, even though we speak about these things, we have confidence that there are better things concerning you. Yes, things accompany salvation. Now, there's one other thing I want to address here. Some people try to take these passages and say they have nothing to do with salvation. How? How could you possibly conclude that when he says right after, even though we spoke in this way, we believe of better things concerning you, things concerning salvation. Clearly, this passage is referring to salvation. So why is the author of Hebrews convinced that they won't be those two rotten soils that ultimately end up in the pit of hell? Why? Well, look at verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work 
and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So why is he confident that these people are saved? It's because he sees true spiritual fruit. It's interesting that Bob in Sunday school talked about spiritual fruit. I didn't know he was going to talk about that. I kind of had a suspicion, but it was interesting he talked about that because that's exactly what our text is saying. Who knows the fruit of the Spirit? If you don't know it by just memory, you should hopefully know it in your heart. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Thank you. We We should have it. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. That's what he's saying, that he sees the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. The opposite of the fruit of the Spirit is the works of the flesh. So he's saying, I believe that you're a true believer because I see the manifestation of the Spirit in your life, especially demonstrated in love for fellow believers. Now, again, let me stop here for a second. Can somebody say this about you? Not somebody who sees you every once in a while, but someone who actually knows you. Maybe your wife. Maybe your children. Maybe your best friend. Could someone say, I'm confident about your salvation, not because you say, Lord, Lord, not because of this or that, but because I see God's work in your life. Or specifically in our text, he says, for God is not unjust, verse 10 again, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you minister to the saints and you do minister. I want you to see what's going on there. Not only have you loved Not only have you ministered, but you do minister. It's past and present current reality. It's out of the love that you have for others that makes me convinced that you are, in fact, a true believer. Now, let's put all this together. Notice what he's saying. Why did he warn them in the first place about this spiritual apostasy? Because he said that it were dull of hearing, that they were babes, that they ought to have grown. He speaks to them as spiritual babes, and he says, you guys need to be warned about some things. But he also says, yet despite that, I still think that you're saved because of your love. Now that brings us up to verse 11. Now look at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Now this is, we're going to spend a lot of time on this phrase, the full assurance of hope. That's what the primary thing we're going to talk about this morning. But here we see that the author of Hebrews says his desire is for them to never stop loving, never to grow sluggish in their acts of love toward the saints. Never quit, never stop, keep going. Never let your past works exceed your current works, but continue to show the love of God toward his saints. And if they do this, this will bring them the full assurance of hope. Now, we don't use that word assurance that much. Sometimes it's not insurance, it's assurance, but it means that confidence to have that full assurance of their salvation to know that they are saved. Now, again, let me stop here for a second. Is anybody in this room, you don't have to put your hands up, this is a rhetorical question for you kids who don't know. Anybody here struggling with assurance of salvation? Or put it differently, have you ever struggled with whether or not you are truly saved? Have you ever asked that question? Am I really saved? When I die, am I certain, am I confident that I will go and be with the Lord? I can tell you myself, I've been saved 17 years, I can tell you myself that I have many times wrestled with this question. More so in the beginning 
than now, but certainly this question has come to my heart before. Am I truly saved? And what's interesting about that, the fact that this question has come in my heart, is I was saved at 15. And I remember the second, the moment, the blink where I was saved. And I saw the transformation, and yet still there were times in my life that I still wonder, was I really saved? Does that make sense? So imagine if you were saved as a child, don't remember any day that you didn't know the Lord, maybe you had this question that come up in your mind before. And I know some of you have had this question because you've asked me. And I have, as a pastor, as just someone who goes around teaching people, counseling people, this question comes up a lot. Are you truly saved? Well, we're going to talk about that. And if I can be frank, there are a few reasons, and not that many actually, I would say maybe two or three reasons why people wonder this question. Am I truly saved? And we're going to talk about that. So here are the reasons. Number one, the reason that people wonder, am I truly saved, they don't have the fullness of assurance of their salvation, is because they have been taught bad doctrine. And that bad doctrine specifically is the relationship of the Christian and the flesh, or the Christian and sin. And so people sometimes just get this idea, especially based on certain passages of the New Testament, that when you become saved, sin is just out of there. It's gone. No more. Adios, domingos. It's gone. And then they look at their lives and say, well, that's not true of me. I still am currently struggling with sin. So therefore, they conclude the erroneous conclusion, therefore, I must not be saved. Does anybody see that? Anybody experience that or at least known someone like that? You say, why don't you think you're saved? Well, and then there's a, they give some peck of a little sin. And you're thinking, why would you think you're not saved based on that? It's, a, it's an unfair and unbiblical expectation that we will no longer struggle with sin. Christian, you will struggle with sin. Christian, you will fail. James says we all struggle in many ways. If we're honest and if we decided to have a little circle time and we said, what have we sinned in the last week? There's not a single person in this room that said, I have not sinned this last week. And if you think that's true, you are very much deceived. And your expectation of righteousness is way, way too low. Everybody in this room has sinned over the last week. Everybody in this room is a saint and a sinner who struggles with sin. So some people have the wrong belief that if I'm saved, then I shouldn't sin. And because I do sin, I must not be saved or probably not saved, which is erroneous and false. James tells us very clearly that we all struggle in many ways. John, the apostle John, puts it even stronger. And he says, if you say that you are without sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And here's why. Because if you are truly regenerate, who resides in your heart? Who comes to live in your heart? God does. And if God is in your heart, he will bring conviction of your sin. And so if he's in there and you're sinning, which you are, he's going to tell you you're messing up. Anybody see that? But if you don't feel that, it's because he's not in there. It's very clear. That's why, James, that's why John says that if you say you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. So the first reason that people have a, do not have the full assurance of that bad theology that they think they should not sin. Or maybe you think, okay, maybe we'll sin, but it should be like once every year or something like that, right? And then how could you possibly say in this room that each one of you have sinned over the last week? I was being generous when I said that you all sinned over the last week. If I wanted to be honest, you've all sinned today, and you all sinned yesterday. And the reason I know that is because what are we supposed to say in the Lord's Prayer. What are we supposed to say? Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And how often are we supposed to do that? Give me this day our daily bread. So every day when you pray that prayer, you are confessing, 
Even before you have sinned, God, I know I'm going to sin. And I'm already saying preemptively, please. Just as I say, Lord, give me my daily bread. Just as I say, help me to forgive those sinners who sin against me because you should expect it. I'm also saying, God, forgive me of my sins because I know that this sinful heart is going to sin. Does that make sense? We are constantly sinning. It's a sad reality, but it's true. We are simultaneously saint and sinner. So if you have any sin in your life whatsoever, do not be alarmed. You might just be a human with the flesh. And it very much might not be that you're saved. So the first reason that some people struggle with the fullness of assurance is they have a faulty view of the relationship between the Christian and sin. And let me just give a few... uh, No, let me move on for that. Okay, the second reason that we might have a lack of assurance is because we have too much sin in our lives. So the first is that we have some sin in our lives and we think that Christians should never have sin in their lives, therefore we're not saved, which is false. The other reason that some of us uh, think that we're not saved is because we have gross and heinous sin in our lives, that we're doing things that we ought not to do. And in fact, it's a good thing and a right thing for you to have wonderings and lack the fullness of assurance. Let me give you some, some few cases about this. Think about Balaam. Remember Balaam, the Old Testament prophet? Right? Was he saved? No, he wasn't. He wasn't saved. Did he have fullness of assurance? No, he didn't. He shouldn't have had. If he did, it was false. He shouldn't have fullness of assurance because he wasn't even saved. Now, what kind of sin was in Balaam's life? He was a lover of money, and he was willing to do anything for a paycheck, wasn't he? And then when God wouldn't go along with him, he decided to use his own ingenuity to curse God's people, all for money. So should Balaam had fullness of assurance of his salvation? The answer is no. What should have tipped Balaam off that perhaps he was an unsaved man? How about his greedy love for money and willing to betray God's people for money? Isn't that fair? Should Balaam have had fullness of assurance? The answer is no. Think about another example. Think about Saul. Was Saul saved? Saul is in hell. All that we can see, Saul is straight in hell right now. And Saul should not have had fullness of assurance. Why? Because his life was consumed with power and hatred for David and for everyone else who would get in his way. And he was willing to do anything and everything to remain his control on power. So that's, that was a gross and heinous sin, so much so that he was willing to commit murder. And so should Saul have had fullness of assurance? The answer is no, because of his obviously godless lifestyle. Think about Judas. He was stealing money directly from Jesus. Or maybe we can extrapolate this. He was stealing money from the people of God. Should Judas have had fullness of assurance? The answer is no, because of what he was doing. Lastly, let's think about Demas. Demas was the, one of uh, Paul's fellow laborers, and he eventually abandoned Paul because it said that he had love for the world. So if you look at your heart and see that you have love for the world, willing so much so that you're willing to abandon Jesus Christ, or you're about to abandon Jesus Christ because of your love for the world, should you have fullness of assurance? The answer is no. And so all of those are examples of people living in gross, unrepentant sin. So here's the point. If you're living in gross, unrepentant sin, and you lack fullness of assurance, good for you. You ought to lack fullness of assurance because you should wonder if you're really saved. That's right. You should. Think about what John says in 1 John chapter 5. He says, this is the message which we have heard from Jesus, from we've heard from God, and I declare it to you. 
that God is in light, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The, the whole book of First John is about this idea of people who are self-deceived, who think, I'm a child of light, and yet they're walking in utter darkness. And God says, you're deceived. This is foolishness, that God is in the light and his children walk in the light. And so if your heart is full of hatred, if your life is full of gross immorality, gross sin, then you should really wonder if, in fact, you're a child of the light. You very much well could be conceived. So it's very natural and good to wonder if you're saved, if, in fact, you live in gross immorality. Now, here's a question. What is gross immorality? I'm not saying like gross, like squeamish, like yuck, I don't like what you're doing, it's embarrassing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about gross as in heinous, as extreme. Okay? How do we know if someone is in extreme sin versus just normal sin that everybody in this room commits? Right? Well, let me first admit this. There's a level of some subjectivity here. Some of the cases can be a little bit fuzzy, but some of them are not. Some of them are, in fact, very easy to see. And what I like to tell people is this. If you're committing sin right now that nobody knows about, and if the church elders or a mature Christian were to find out about, that they would immediately call you to repentance. And if you refuse, they would begin the excommunication process. Yeah, you're in gross sin. Okay? Let me give you some examples of that. What does that look like? Well, if you're having an affair, is an example. If you're com- currently committing adultery, you're in gross immorality. If the elders were to find out, they would immediately call you to repentance. If you refuse, you'd be immediately be put in a church disciplinary process. Again, some other extreme examples. If you're robbing banks, if you're involved in organized crime, if you're trafficking human beings, if you're selling drugs. Everybody, everybody see what I'm saying? There are certain sins that are so gross in nature that they immediately call into question that if you're saved at all. Again, some of these... Some of these are a little bit questionable. Hopefully nobody disagrees with me. If you're part of human trafficking, we're going to start processing you out for excommunication. Okay? If you disagree, then I'm sorry. But it's true. We will. At least this church will. Now, uh, one, one caveat, though. Notice I said that if you're doing this sin that nobody knows about, and if someone were to find out, they'd call you to repentance. And one caveat about that is and if you would not respond by repenting. Okay? Now, if you do respond by repenting, then you have shown that, in fact, you are, it looks like you are a true believer. Think about the case of David. David committed mass murder, he committed adultery, he committed some of these sins that I said, killing and committing adultery, right? And yet, when Nathan came up to him and said, thou art the man, what did he say? 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the response of the true Christian. Even when the true Christian commits heinous sin, is that when they're called out upon it, they repent. Let me just stop here for a second. I have known Christians that fall into heinous sins. But you know that when they have been called out, I have noticed a very clear and consistent pattern. When they have been called out, they repent and that they are broken. But I've noticed false believers who profess to be believers who committed the same gross sin, when they're called, about it, called out about it, they respond in anger and frustration and lack of repentance. And this is exactly like the book of Proverbs says, that if you rebuke a fool, you'll get a beating. But if you rebuke a wise man, you'll be wiser, and he'll thank you. So often, a, a major sign of someone's questionable salvation is not only the, the, the reality of heinous sin, 
but the refusal to repent of that heinous sin. Again, we saw David's response is that David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You can look at Psalm 51 and see David's true repentance. I'll just give you a sampling. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 9 says, this is David after he has sinned. He cries out to the Lord and says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast away your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So if this is your response to your gross and heinous sin, then you should have confidence that, in fact, you are a true believer. But if this is not your response and you refuse to repent or you continue to do this kind of thing, then it really does call into question and you should have every reason to wonder if, in fact, you are a believer. One more example, and for the sake of time, I won't go there, but you can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a man who has his, his father's wife, most likely his stepmother, And Paul says, this is such a gross and heinous sin that you should immediately, next time you gather together, process this person out for excommunication. And in that passage, he says that you should deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And so what church discipline is, is the church excommunicating you and delivering you over to Satan. In the words of Matthew 18, you are to treat such a one as a tax collector and as a heathen, as a Gentile. Now, for the Jews, did they think that tax collectors, which are apostates, which are betrayers, and heathen, which are Gentiles, were they part of the covenant people of God? No, they weren't. So this was a declaration of the church to say, we are no longer confident of your salvation. You are removed from the people of God. You are delivered from the kingdom of God into the kingdom of Satan. Very, very serious reality. And so, we see the idea that if you're committing gross heinous sin, and refuse to repent, the church should excommunicate you, which is the church's declaration that you are an unbeliever. Now, if you're doing this and nobody knows, you should still wonder if you are really saved. Because if the church did know, we would do it to you. Does that make sense? There's a very good reason not to have fullness of assurance if you deserve to be excommunicated. All right. The second reason is not just the level of immorality is so great, so heinous, so disgusting, so bad that we throw you out immediately. But the frequency of that sin is so continuous that it calls into question your salvation. Okay? So we saw extreme examples where you have someone robbing banks and killing people. But most people aren't doing that, right? Hopefully not. If you are, we can talk about it later. But hopefully you're not doing that. Most of us probably are, or at least I shouldn't say most of us, hopefully none of us, but the, the more likely reality is you're not doing such a heinous sin that's that gross in nature, but rather there's a frequency of that sin. You continue to do a sin, and you just refuse to repent over days, weeks, months, and years. Let me give an example of that. So think about the Lord's command not to forsake the gathering of the saints, the sab- sabbatical principle, right? That's what we're all doing here is we're not forsaking the gathering of the saints. We're doing this. So to not do this would be unrighteous. It would be, in fact, sin. So if you skip a single church service, a Sunday you just decide, I'm just going to go to the beach. I'm just going on vacation. Got better things to do. So says you. But you do that. Do you think that a church is going to start processing you for excommunication? Would that be reasonable? Probably not, right? Because even though it's a sin, it's not so heinous and gross that we're going to immediately start doing that. But what if you decide, instead of taking one week off, which you shouldn't do, by the way, I'm not telling you you should do this, But instead of doing this, you decide to take one year off. If that number's not big enough, what about two? Whatever your number is, 10 years you haven't showed up to church. 
would that now be calling into question your salvation? Absolutely. So it's not just the intensity, but it is the frequency. That should, should cause one to think if this person is truly saved. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Here's the words of Jesus. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Therefore, you will know them by their fruits. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? You don't just listen to their lips, but you can just look at it. And you can see, is this tree producing lots of good fruit or lots of bad fruit? And the tree is producing lots of bad fruit, then one should wonder, is that a good tree at all? Right? You know, this is interesting. Now that I live kind of a little farm, I learned a lot of new things about reality. Namely, a lot of farm life is undeniable. It's just obvious. If you've got this tree that's all nasty and messed up, you could say all this you want about, eh, it's fine, it's okay. You're not going to pick fruit from that tree. You're just going to cut it down and throw it away. And that's what Jesus is saying. We can make all the excuses that we want, but in the reality, you know a good tree and you know a bad tree. Many of you probably don't have farms, but you all go to Walmart, all these giants. Isn't that true? Right? And you see the bad fruit and the good fruit, and you know how to discern one from the other. Sometimes you see mostly some good grapes, and one bad grape, you might throw that one bad grape off, but you probably buy the grapes. But if you see all of them are bad, you know bad grapes, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Again, sometimes it's a little bit fuzzy. How many bad grapes do you have to have before you refuse to buy that bunch? Sometimes they're fuzzy. But many times it's very, very specific. We will know a tree by its fruit. Not by its profession, by the way. Now, sometimes if someone just goes out and says, I don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't believe he's the Son of God, I don't believe in the gospel, very clear, right? But what about when they do say that they do believe all those things? Well, Jesus tells us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, have done many wonders in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Very clear. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So let's summarize what we, what we talked about. Some of you lack fullness of assurance. I'm going to talk about how we can get it. But some of you lack the fullness of assurance. And we talked about a few different ways you could lack that. One, you could have a bad doctrine of sin. You could think that Christians should be perfectionists and should never sin. Bad doctrine. The second is you could be committing heinous immorality. You could be that stereotypical. Well, at least the world thinks it's stereotypical. I don't think so. I've seen true believers. I don't, I don't think this, this is actually true. But the world says that we're a bunch of hypocrites that just come in here and we look good. We dress in our little suits and do this and that. And then we get out there and live like the devil. And in fact, if you are living like the devil out there, you should wonder if you are in fact saved. You should lack the fullness of assurance because of the gross and heinous immorality of your life. It's also possible that you lack the fullness of assurance not because you're committing such a gross sin individually, but because you have a pattern of unrepentant sin. You just refuse to give up this area, and it's been days, been weeks, been years, and you refuse to give it up whatsoever. If that's the case, 
That's why you have the lack of fullness of assurance. So that's the negative stuff. But there's also another reason you could lack the fullness of assurance. And it's not the presence so much of bad fruit, whether that's the intensity or frequency, but actually the lack of good fruit. Everybody see that? It's not just that you're seeing bad fruit all in your life, but you don't have any good fruit, or you lack significant good fruit. Now, there, of course, there is the fact that the two do go together. If you lack good fruit, it's probably because there are bad fruit there. But I'm going to focus specifically on the lack of good fruit. See, it's not just the, the presence of hate in your life, but it's the lack of love. Because if you think about it, there's love, hate, but there's something in the middle. What's in the middle? You have love, you have hate. What's right there in the middle? Indifference. You see that? So you should be alarmed not only if you find yourself hating people, and not only if you find yourself not loving people, but that you're indifferent toward people. It's actually the lack of fruit that could be the cause of your lack of fullness of assurance. Think about John 13, verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. What's that, Bob? What is it that by this will everyone know that you are my disciple? Love. You see that? Love. So what happens if you have no love? I'm not just talking about you find hate. But what if you see, I don't see any love in my heart. I don't see any fruit of love. Well, nobody will know that you're a disciple. You see that? And it calls into question if you're really a disciple. Because if you're really a disciple, you should have love. If you don't have love, maybe you're not a real disciple. We talked about this in the so Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. The fruit. If the Spirit lives there, he's going to produce fruit. Make sense? The Spirit's in your heart. What should come out of that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. If you don't have that, you don't have the fullness of assurance. That's why. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the reason many people lack the fullness of assurance is because they have too much sin in their life. Well, first, I said bad doctrine. Second, got too much sin in your life. Third, you don't got enough fruit. I'm sorry to say it like that, but it's true. That is the reality. So instead of being a mature Christian who has an abundance of good fruit in their lives that testify that they are really saved, they don't have much at all. And this leaves them wondering if, in fact, they are a child of God. This is the cause of the lack of full assurance. It's because too much sin and not enough of fruit. Again, go back to those four soils. If you go and, if you go and look at Luke's version, you know what he says? He says that the good soil brings fruit onto maturity, that 30, 60, 100-fold. The other ones, if you see that picture, it starts sprouting up. Things are happening, and yet it never produces that fruit that goes on to maturity. And so you have that fruit that goes on to maturity, then you have that confidence. And you can say, why do I think I'm a believer? Because I see God's undeniable work in my life. Does that make sense? I see undeniable work in my life, and I live in integrity, not perfect, sinless, as I'm talking about, but I live in integrity. I am not, in fact, a hypocrite. I am not, in fact, saying one thing on Sunday and doing something utterly and entirely different every other day of the week. Do you have works that justify your faith, that justify that your faith is, in fact, Real. Think about the words of James. James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one says to them, depart in peace, be warned to be filled, but you do not give them things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, outside of works, 
is dead. Can that faith that produces no works save you? No, it is dead. True faith produces a Holy Spirit in your life that produces true good works. Not perfect obedience, but that is the reality. The reality is this, that full assurance of hope is not a birthright. It's a privilege to the mature. You you realize that? See, sometimes I see these tracts that have you say the Lord's Prayer, or say a prayer of salvation, and then immediately says, then you are saved, and you should never question your salvation ever. And if anyone ever causes you to question salvation, you should think that person is a bad person. It's false. Full assurance comes from a fruitful life, from being a mature Christian, from being someone who is walking with the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 38, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Full assurance is a privilege for the mature. Now, what this should do for us is make us strive for that fullness of assurance. We should want for that. And if we don't have that, that is an alarm bell that things are wrong. Then, in fact, we have not gone on to spiritual maturity. Let me go on to say this, which I've kind of already hinted at, which might surprise you. Being a baby Christian is not okay. Sometimes, especially in some lukewarm corners of evangelical Christianity, being a baby Christian is like a catch-all phrase. How do you explain this person's immaturity? They're just a lukewarm Christian. They're just a baby Christian. It's all good. No, it isn't. Being a baby Christian is not okay. Being a baby Christian is something reprehensible and something that we should go and move beyond. Now, one caveat here. If you're a baby Christian because you just got saved, that's one thing. But in fact, if you're a baby Christian and you ought to be a teacher, that is not okay. And that is not something good. In fact, that is a dreadful state to be in. And that's what we've already looked at. We saw that, and this is the entire reason that this whole section is here. He says to them, remember chapter 5? You are a baby Christian. And that's why he warns them. We need to go on to maturity, and we will. Unless we don't. Because there are only two paths for baby Christians. Those Christians that haven't produced that 30, 60, 100 fold, there's only two paths. You know what those two paths are? You'll either go on 30, 60, 100 fold, you'll go on to that Christian maturity and get that fullness of assurance, or you won't. And instead, you will go on to apostasy. We need to be alarmed if, in fact, we see in ourselves and we see in others that we are that kind of questionable case. We have a little bit of good fruit, we have a little bit of bad fruit. I'm not sure what kind of tree that is. That's not okay to be in that state. Don't be in that state. Get the fullness of assurance. Strive for that and gain it. And we can get it by going on to spiritual maturity. So we should look at ourselves and see, do we have the fullness of assurance? Do we? Have we come and tasted that the Lord is good? Have we seen that God is really working in our lives? Have we truly repented of our sins? And do our lives look like, in fact, saved people? And if they don't, We should think about that. So that's a little gloomy. I don't want to leave you in a little gloomy spot there. So let's press on some hope and some encouragement. Look at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, and you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So notice here, He doesn't want them to be sluggish. He wants them to continue to be diligent with love till they get that full assurance. That's what this whole sermon's been about so far. The same diligence, to be diligent toward love, to get the fullness of assurance of hope until the end. Don't be sluggish. 
but rather, positively, imitate those who do inherit the promise. What do those who inherit the promise actually look like? They look like two things according to our passage, and we'll be brief here. They look like they have faith, and they look like they have patience. This is what the overcomer looks like. And then he gives Abraham as the example. Abraham says he believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and God said, you're justified. We see that in Romans chapter 4, right? But he also points to Abraham in this chapter and says, Abraham also overcame through patience, that he endured trials and tribulations and sufferings and kept going. And he's in calling us as believers to do the same thing. You will overcome through faith and through patience. This is the reality. And so if you're patiently enduring, if you're saying, how much longer must I continue to fight this battle? How much longer must I continue to hold on? Recognize that this is not the anomaly experience, but this is actually the experience of the believer. Do you realize that? If you sit there and think, God, I don't know how much longer I can wait, you should actually gain hope and assurance to realize that this is actually the plight of the true believer. The true believer has to suffer. The true believer has to wait. They have to endure. Jesus says, whoever endures to the end shall be saved. Think about the word endure. You have to hold on. Paul says that through many tribulations that we will inherit the promise. Patience is I'm going to put it, the birthright of the believer. This is the way that we go into the kingdom. So if you see that in your life and you're wondering how much longer, recognize that this is the path to glory. Now let's look at verse 13 briefly. So we, we saw that example of Abraham, and then we see the reality. Abraham had the same thing going on with him. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. This is Abraham's journey. God prayed a promise to him, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And then after he waited, he received. Beloved, you have that same promise. God has promised you the same thing. Surely blessing I will blessing Multiplying, I will multiply you, but we must hold on. We have a promise from God that he will bless us, that he will take us home, and we just need to wait to the fulfillment of that. And that's why we see verse 17 to 20, I'm done. God tells us that he has a promise. He's made a promise to us, and that promise is immutable because his mind will never change. It says by two, verse 18, that by two immutable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, we who have fled for hope and lay hold to the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence, Jesus Christ. You have an anchor for your soul if the hope, which is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has given you that anchor that he really will redeem you. He really will save you. This whole message has not been to cause you to doubt your salvation if, in fact, you're a true believer. You should realize that you have a strong hope, that you have fled. The question is, have you fled? But if you have fled, you have this unmovable anchor and hope that you know that Christ is going to redeem you. You have to patiently wait and lean on that anchor. Does that make sense? hope it does. God bless you. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you have given us a strong anchor for the soul, that we have this hope that we know that we are going to be with you, not because of our works, but because of your works, because of your righteousness, because we truly have fled. Well, we want the fullness of hope, of assurance. 
We don't want it because somebody tells us to have it, but we want it because your spirit confirms with our spirit that we are children of God, that we are not walking in darkness and masquerading as false believers, but we are, in fact, children of light. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that you have saved us, and now we must wait, Lord. Help us to wait patiently, hoping in you all the way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.